It is August 3rd, 2020. This is episode 11 of the Soybean Pest Podcast. And to the opposite screen of me is my co-host. Hi there, I'm Erin Hansen. <laughs> With excellent timing. And I'm Matt O'Neill. And we're going to do it. We're going to talk soybean pest. We haven't been on the air for what? Is this, we went off, we weren't around last week. So now we're back. That's right. So we have so much to talk about. Okay. Let's talk. Okay. Let's talk soybeans. Let's talk pests. Let's talk it all. Okay. So Where do you want to start? I want to talk about soybean pests. What soybean pests do you know about? What have you been hearing? Uh, well, one thing that's a little bit different this year than maybe in past years, it seems like crop progress is moving along really quickly in which um, some fields have already started to reach beginning seed set. So this is not typical to see in July. Usually that happens maybe the second or third week of August. So that changes everything for me um, when I think about fields that have started to, to fill seeds in the pod. But um, we are hearing about a few places where soybean aphids are a little bit easier to find. So if you're walking through and you're just you know, checking presence absence, you'd be able to find some aphids. Um, but generally, I haven't heard about any fields that have, <clears throat> excuse me, that have exceeded the threshold if so, they're counting aphids per plant. Um, let's break down a little bit of what you just said. Uh, it's August 3rd, and you're looking at crops that are two weeks uh, further in development than what they usually would be? Yeah, at, at least a week for sure. Yeah, okay. depending on where you're at. And is that... Uh, is that variation that you're seeing regional? Because uh, we're seeing some drought in Iowa in the well, the western side of the state. I think it's pretty much dry, pretty much on the western half, maybe a little bit drier in the central part. But is that where some of this crop development is progressing for, uh, faster than other parts of the state? Uh, I would say that it's just generally all over crops are progressing faster. Okay. Not necessarily totally associated with the severe drought in the western part of the state. Yeah, fair enough. Um, yeah, that's kind of remarkable because we had two, I'd say two weeks of above average temperature. And now this week is starting a below uh, average span of temperatures for the week, something in the 70s, getting down into the 50s even. Um, it was so nice to work out this morning when it was, what, 57 degrees? Oh, my yeah. gosh. Very, very nice. Yeah, uh, we went for... Plants like it, too. Yeah, although it does slow development because plants are... Um, we don't think of plants as being having blood, but um, they're cold-blooded. They don't... <laughs> yeah, they're dependent upon the external temperature to grow. Um yeah, it's going to be interesting because um, I'm looking for a link uh, to an email from Brian Lang, who's a field crop extension agronomist up in the northeast corner of the state. And Brian was sharing some numbers from a field that he visits weekly throughout the season. And um, the numbers caught my eye this time. It was pretty I remarkable. you were looking for something. What's that? I could tell you, that you were looking for something. Yeah. Uh, our, our listener can't see me, but I'm staring at a screen. And for some reason, I cannot find that email uh, that he sent today with the numbers. Um, yeah, I think so, it was like 180. 
per plant. The average was 180. Yeah, yeah, really remarkable. Um, and all the plants infested. And he was saying the range went up from, you know, what, several dozen to 500. So if that was a field in, you know, R1, R2, I'd be like, yeah, you're probably going to have to spray that. Um, that's going to that's gonna blow past the 250 um, threshold and you're going to want to get on top of that. But yeah, now with this really late, this not late, this um, speedy development of the crop, it could be that, what, maybe, maybe that field doesn't need to be sprayed. It's uh, maturing fast enough that it'll tolerate whatever feeding damage it's receiving from the plant. What do you think? I totally agree. Yeah. Um, I think I've shown in two or three years for my efficacy evaluation that when I spray R5, I don't see a yield response. Um, the plant is, the plants in those fields have physiology, they've developed as, as much as they can and contributed, you know, the, the grain determination for yield has been sort of set. So it's not a spray at that time as not impacted the physiology. Mm -hmm. um, as if it had been sprayed earlier. So it doesn't mean that it couldn't generate a yield response, but um, in my data, I have not been able to, to do that when it's planted so late or when it's sprayed so late. Right. And that's a good point to make out that, uh, to, to focus on that. Um, just because the plant is past this sort of window of vulnerability that we have in our recommendations for the soybean aphid, you know, we recommend spraying around uh, what is it, up to R4 um, for populations that are exceeding the 250 per plant threshold. That doesn't mean that the plant can't benefit from a spray uh, past that time point. It's just that we don't have the data um, to support that. And it's now it's getting into a little bit of art, right? The farmer's going to have to check out the field, see how heavy those populations are, you know, kind of do some um, thinking about how much they want to invest economically in that field, you know, for the input costs it's going to take to buy the product and spray it. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a tough decision to make. Um, the other thing I wonder about is, you know, the, this cool week that goes on, the plant's going to slow its development, but the aphid is in its sweet spot in temperatures that are in the 70s, and those populations are probably going to grow even faster. So, yeah, that makes me worried, right? Um, well, the thing that I consider is, okay, maybe aphids aren't at the threshold and you're at beginning seed set, but you'd have bean leaf beetles, grasshoppers, and stink bugs that could be a directly affecting the seed and the pod. So if you have direct injury happening with the indirect injury from soybean aphid, it's then it's more of a, a balancing act between the two types of injury so, so late in the season. So that's when I, it would be a field-by-field field case for me. Excellent point um, that you're spraying a broad spectrum insecticide, right? It's going to be a product that can kill not just aphids, but a variety of insects. And yeah, there's, there's quite a few things out there. Um, defoliators like the bean leaf beetle and grasshoppers, maybe even some Lepidoptera, some yeah. clover worm. Definitely a lot of caterpillars this year in some fields. Let's talk a little bit about what kind of product to use. Of all places, I saw an advertisement on Reddit for Transform. And I, I thought it was interesting. I, I didn't think of our 
our constituency, farming constituency, spending a lot of time on Reddit. But sure enough, it was there, and Corteva was uh, promoting uh, a product on a kind of a novel platform. What do you think about Transform? Is that a product that's going to be broad spectrum and provide uh, protection against some of these other pests that we were talking about? I don't think so. I think it's targeted to fluid feeders. So if soybean aphid is your primary pest, I think it's an excellent option. If you have uh, chewing pests, like some of the other things we just talked about, I'm not sure that that would be my go-to choice if you had sort of a complex of pests. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, a tough decision, but uh, one to th be thinking about and probably worth a visit to your field or fields and eyeball what uh, kind of aphid population you have there and the development of the plant. Anything else, any other insects that uh, have shown up in your research plots or you've heard from conversations with others in extension? Yeah, uh, along the, the whole western edge of the state, soybean gallmage is the injury is starting to become more evident. And I think people are looking in fields because they're just assessing quality from sudden death syndrome and maybe some other pathogens. And they are also finding soybean gallmage in fields uh, along the outside and then more to the field interior. So that is starting to show up visually. And then also there are parts of the state where two-spotted spider mite are becoming oh. a little bit more easy to find. And yeah. some of the visual signs of prolonged feeding are, are, are showing up as well. So um, you know, those would be evidence that they've been there for a long time, but at the same time, we have a lot of growth left in the season, you know, all of August and part of September. So it is worth your time to get out there, scout, and then if you have to make a treatment decision. Um, are those reports of spider mites, are they limited to or coming primarily out of the part of the state that's under a drought? Um, they are patchy. Certainly more of them would be in the Northwest part of the state, um, but there have been some more North Central and just Northern in general. So it's not necessarily associated with just the severe drought from the drought monitor map, but um, I think most of the state in general is pretty dry. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. And we've gone, uh, at least in this part of the state, Central Iowa, uh, we're going on to about a week or so without a substantial rainfall. So. And it may be later this week if we get any of the pop-up thunderstorms that might come through. So that dryness is likely to continue for a while. Yet another reason to scout a field. Anything else? Um, yeah. So, I mean, I could talk forever about this, but um, there's always stuff if you're looking. But if you think about our other crop, corn, we're hearing a lot about uh, corn rootworm injury happening, even in traded corn. We talked a bit about it last week, but that continues. Um, our colleague, Dr. Aaron Gassman, has been making some collections like he does every summer. And I know last week he was in the very southwest, or sorry, southeast part of the state. Um, maybe um, he doesn't you know, have a, a lot of sample points in that part of the, the world, but he spent quite a bit of time down there even last week. So down by Keokuk, huh? It's widespread. What's that? Down by Keokuk, Iowa, in the tri-state area. Uh, yeah, kind of. I mean, I don't know exactly, but it was southeast of here. Yeah. Okay. 
And then I'm also starting to hear about corn earworm in BT corn, which people are very surprised and disappointed to find corn earworm in their field corn when they use um, traded corn. Um, But uh, we've seen evidence the last three years of earworms kind of just blasting through that BT and causing a lot of ear damage, especially to the tip. So that is something that we've noted and it's probably increasing every year since 2017. So even if you're using traits or your clients are using traits, it's worth just spot checking to make sure the earworm injury uh, isn't getting out of control. So when you say you're not surprised by earworm injury to traded corn, corn expressing BT toxins, that's because it's been known for some time now, at least amongst applied entomologists, that those traits are not providing protection? Or is it uh, that insect is becoming resistant to those traits? Yes. So it has been known for a while, corn earworm um, in the what do you call it? Atlantic states, mid Atlantic. What do they call it? The South Dominic. What do you guys call yourselves down there? But I think it's mid Atlantic. I think you're right. Mid Atlantic states. Corn earworm is kind of blowing through some of the traits, not only in corn but in other crops as well, because you know it could be in cotton and soybean, and so um, it's just having a lot of performance issues with transgenics. Um, but in 2017, um, and if you if you didn't know, now you know that corn earworms migrate here every year. And so um, they were carrying those resistant traits, came up to Iowa, and their offspring were also able to survive on BT corn. So our colleague at the USDA, ARS, Dr. Brad Coates, and Craig Abel made collections on some fields that were um, basically every ear was infested. They did a, a bioassay with an artificial diet and showed those populations to be resistant to um, double traded corn, you know, uh, pyramid mm-hmm, corn mm-hmm, for BT. Mm-hmm. And so it started with a few fields, um, but it's a, it's a one-way ticket for those corn earworms uh, to the Midwest. Um, but ever since then, uh, we've been finding a few more fields every year where there's unusually high numbers of earworms in corn. So with the help of the USDA folks, they determine those populations to be resistant. And the unusually large, would you say, I want to make sure I get that quote right, the unusual number of corn earworms, what what does that look like when you walk into a field that has an unusual number of corn earworms? Well, I would say in the fields that I visited, it was probably 90% of the ears had earworms. And I think earworms are some of the grossest insects there are. They're just really messy feeders and so the way that they that you know the the females would lay an egg on the silk the that caterpillar would hatch and move into the ear tip and they kind of open up that tip uh, as they're feeding and so it allows pathogens to enter the the ear as well so almost all the ears had earworms they had a rainbow of fungal pathogens and basically the ears were squishy so the whole ear, try, the whole ear, not just the tip, but the whole ear. Because it was just, yeah. And so oh we would gosh. try to open up the ears because we wanted to make collections. And it was like, the ears were like spongy. It was mm-hmm. one of the grossest days I've ever, it wasn't a fun collecting day. It was a, it was a gross day. Um, but it was, yeah, it was just, I mean, the, the, the fields were chopped for earlidge. Uh, the following day because there was the quality was so bad and the mold was so bad they were they didn't want to mix in that tainted grain with yeah. some better quality grain so yeah they can be they can cause a lot of damage 
um, to the quality of the grain, but also the molds can further uh, reduce the impact, you know, increase the yeah. impact of that. And is that one generation in Iowa, the migrating population comes up, goes well, through a generation and, and are, are we done or do you get a couple, is there enough growing degree days, enough summer for them to get a couple of generations? I think they just have one generation as far as I know, but it's just multiple, multiple infestations. Okay. Yeah, I think yeah, with the winds and everything, I think you would find earworms in, basically they're looking for silks. And so um, depending on when corn is planted. And so if they had a late planted hybrid or you had something like sweet corn where you have multiple dates of planting, that's super attracted to females because they're looking for green silks. And so typically the later planted corn is more susceptible, but um, I think we're getting multiple events coming into the state. And if you see that, what do you do? Is there anything to be done? Uh, really, there's nothing to be done as far as management because once the caterpillars get in the ear, it's very hard to manage them. So it requires a proactive scouting effort. And it's really hard to do because you're looking for eggs on silks, which is not easy. But um, yes, yeah, as, as far as long-term management, I would expect more and more issues with corn earworm on BT corn in Iowa. Yeah, I was just looking at uh, what we've published on this in extension in September 23, 2019. A little bit of background notes that there are two flights. The first flight is too early in the season to be of economic concern, but that second flight in late July, which is the one that we're talking about, that's the one that produces the population that causes the damage that uh, we're most concerned about. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, it's disturbing. That's really sad. Um, any happy news? <laughs> any good news? Um, good news. The, the painted ladies in my backyard are doing a lot of good things. Um, my spearmint is, is bringing all the wasps to the, to the club. Um, I'm having a lot of pollinators in my get, backyard. Your spearmint brings all the wasps to the yard? Yes. And uh, I have a lot of fun milkweed insects this year. So in my yeah. backyard, it's a little bit of a bonanza right now. Can so we, it's fun to just hang out and there's a lot of diversity there, but it's not exactly good news for pests. Yeah, um, a little bit pest related. Uh, you've got a, um, well, uh, I was gonna say student. She's not a student anymore. I keep uh, forgetting this. Ashley Dean, who's your employee now is out uh, doing a little bit of scouting for our colleagues up in Minnesota looking for the parasitoids that attack the soybean aphid. And in his email to us, Brian Lang noted that he's seeing at least two species of parasitoids attacking aphids in his part of the world. Um, not sure that's going to provide a lot of protection with the numbers that he's telling us uh, in terms of number of aphids per plant and the the noticeable but low percentage of parasitism that's going on. Um, but it is somewhat hopeful given that when this aphid arrived, it arrived without any parasitism. And uh, those that community of insects seems to be picking up some, at least over the last five years, we're seeing, I think, I think it's fair to say we're seeing more parasitism of soybean aphids than we have in the past. And that may not provide protection in a given year, but year to year, I think it's helping to suppress the population and help reduce the risk of outbreaks. The monarch, yeah, the milkweed. Can we talk a little bit about that? I know this is the Soybean Pest Podcast, but um, 
I, I think our experiences are not unique, that a lot of people are spending more time in their backyards than they have in, in normal summers. And the, the, amount of, the amount of time I spend looking at my garden and stuff growing is, um, I don't know, it's probably like 100 times more than I ever have. It's, so I've got some milkweed uh, growing, but I've never seen as much insect life as I have on the viney milkweed, what's sometimes called blue vine. Do you have that in your backyard? No. I'll, I'll try to throw a picture on our, um, our little description. I've got uh, what we've been calling the Arc de Monarch in the backyard where this I've trellised the, this viney milkweed on an arc. And it, um, it's, it's flowering now. And it's not just monarchs that are showing up. It's giant swallowtails, the painted ladies, and then honeybees. Somebody's keeping a honeybee. Uh, colony not too far from me and yeah every morning from starting sometimes as early as eight o'clock there's half a dozen honeybees on it pretty gentle not bothering anybody just trying to get at that nectar yeah it's really remarkable I even had a couple of caterpillars a couple of monarch caterpillars that's the first time I've seen those in my backyard have you had any luck seeing no I don't generally see a lot of monarch activity in my front yard or my backyard it's other uh, milkweed insects and mm -hmm. so I don't typically get like the caterpillar feeding but lots of other things going on so that's typical for my my yard yeah I, I've talked to some people they get really frustrated that they grow milkweed plants and they fail to see the eggs or the caterpillars and they get really frustrated and they feel like they're not doing anything and I have to remind them that you know even for people who are deliberately trying to grow as many monarchs as possible outside it, it's still a rare event to get an egg and then get the caterpillar and go all the way to adulthood. And the little patches that we have in our yard are, you know, they're hard for these uh, critters to find. And, and once they're on there, they're prone to predation. So it's, um, it's a remarkable event. It's a, it can be a very rare event, but those plants provide value to monarchs beyond just completing the life cycle, they're also a source of food for the adults as they migrate both up from Mexico and, and now as they're starting to head back down south, or at least prepare for the journey back down south. Yeah, do you remember my niece, Chloe? Oh, yeah. How's she doing? She's a monarch rearing pro, and yeah? she's, been, she's been rearing monarchs since she's been about six years old, and this has been the quietest monarch year she has ever had. And normally she rears easily 50 to 60 monarchs. It's like a farm in their, in their dining room. And she can collect the eggs and complete the cycle and then does a release of the, of the adults. And she has got a whole system down for that. And this year she said maybe about 20% of the monarchs that she would normally find. So the uh, abundance around her yard is really low this year. And She's finding naturally occurring eggs on her yep. milkweed. Oh, well, that's good for her. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's how big a patch does she have? Uh, it's the front of their home. It's probably a strip of like 20 feet by 50 feet. It's, oh, a, that's, I mean, it's a fairly big area yeah, with a lot of yeah. milkweed. Um, but it's a lot, it has a lot of other things in there too to draw in, I think, pollinators in general. But she's just noted, you know, her observations of monarchs are way down this year. Well, hopefully that's not true for everybody out there. I was trying to find something positive to talk about. Now I, 
Sorry, just call me Betty Buzzkill, Matt. Sorry. Uh, um, how about we wrap up? I've got a, um, a fit-ish question. Hey, that's me. Oh. <laughs> fit-ish? Fit-ish. Hey, congratulations on, is this your second beer and bagel run completion? Yeah, you too. Yeah, well, I, I didn't do it in uh, 120 degree heat in the middle of the most humid weekend on Iowa history. It was it was bad. Yeah, well done. I waited the next day, Monday morning. Got, got up early and knocked that out after the heat wave passed. But anyway. Yeah, um, by early, you mean like 8.30? Wasn't um, it kind of mid-morning? Okay, it's true I'm not a morning person, uh, but I was up well before then. <laughs> I will say that I didn't finish the run by 8.30. It was past 8.30. Not my fastest time. Um, no, definitely not my fastest yeah, time. But, hey, there's always next year, and we'll keep training. Um, yeah, so this is a fit-ish question. Pretty simple one. Um, and I was watching the news, and this came up, and I thought, oh, this, my, this is, this is well, here's a hint. This is related to the topic of our podcast, at least in the first word. So here's a question. Um, how many billionaires live in Iowa? I'll give you a hint. It's a man. I'll give you another hint. He's a breeder. Yeah. A plant breeder. And the Just company. Harry Stein? Yep, you got it. Harry Stein. Ding, 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 ding. Harry Stein. He's the only one. What about that roundup dude? Um, so according. According to USA Today, Harry Stein is the only billionaire that lives in Iowa. Makes his home not too far from us. I don't know if I need to reveal it. You can go online and find it. Yeah, and he's the uh, name behind Stein Seed, Stein Soybean and Corn. I think they do some corn as well, right? Although they're known for soybeans. Anyway. Yeah. And... We're supposed to be doing a field day for Stein later this month. Um, I don't know if it's actually going to happen. We'll see. Really? Oh, wow. That, where at? Um, to be determined west of here, I think. Okay. At one of their locations, not at the field facility. Ooh, can I come along? Can I see? I would, can you have a helper? I mean, I don't think Harry will be there. Oh, <laughs> that's okay. Still be interested to I see could it. totally see you swarming up to him. And oh, like, no. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Dude, I could totally see it. I'm sure he's got good radar to keep uh, geeky entomologist away from him who want to ask, so are you going to sell any aphid-resistant soybeans in the future? But enough about us. Well, anything else to talk about? I don't have anything else today. I think we covered a lot. I think I said um and okay enough. So I think we could probably read my quota. So I think we could probably wrap this one up. All right. All right. Great. Thank you, Aaron. See you Thanks, next week. Bye. Yep.